Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? And I want to warn you, my hearing aid had a blowout this week, and it's in the wherever they send it. And when that happens, sometimes I tend to run all my words together. So you listen quickly, raise your hand if you finish before I do, because <laughs> I'll probably be talking really fast. When I get excited, I do that, and I apologize to you at the outset. I just can't hear myself. I'm like in a tunnel that's carpeted. That's the way it sounds. A sound room. You ever been to a sound booth? It's exactly the way it sounds. So I just warn you straight up. Also, we moved this past week. My Bible is in a box somewhere. Uh, we didn't finish until last night, actually early hours of this morning. And uh, so I have studied and I have prayed. It's strictly going to be the Lord this morning. It's going to be a wonderful time to see how he works through absolutely nothing. <laughs> Would you turn in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? We're talking about a word to the wise, a word to the wise. Remember the audience of the Corinthian church, these are the strong. These are the ones who understand the message of grace. This has been going on since chapter eight, verse one. The whole thing that started Paul's dissertation on this is the fact of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And there was a group there that understood grace they knew that eating meat sacrificed to idols didn't mean anything. It would in no way infringe upon their standing in Christ. And so they were simply flaunting their liberty in grace on those who were the weaker brother. You see, there were weaker brothers around that didn't understand the message. As a matter of fact, the stronger ones that understood was causing the weaker ones to defile their conscience because they couldn't handle it. Why would these people be eating meat sacrificed to idols? They had just come out of that kind of pagan background. It had sent mixed signals. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to say, listen, you need to learn to deny yourself for the sake of the weaker brother. You've got to remember, you don't live your life for yourself. You live your life for Christ. And also the weaker brother then, the person around you, you become sensitive to that brother. Well, he has a word to the wise. And as we get down in chapter 10 to verse 14, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, the Corinthians couldn't seem to put this together. Idolatry simplified is simply embracing one's flesh. Isn't it amazing how subtle that is? I don't think I have ever had this, quite this perspective before. Because as I've, I know sin's serious and I understand that, but I've never quite seen it as idolatry to where embracing flesh is an act of idolatry. 
It may be a small act, a large act, but it leads to larger things. And when a person chooses to do what the flesh orders, then he's just chosen an act of idolatry, prostituted his faith, as we saw exemplified with Israel. He's adulterated his faith and has tempted God, has torn the witness of who God is in his life down amongst others and has, and, and has even murmured against the leaders that God has put over him. And so we see that idolatry then is embracing the flesh. Now who's Paul writing to? He's writing to one of the most idolatrous churches in the New Testament. And no wonder his message is so profound. You see, Corinth had chosen to embrace flesh, not to embrace Christ. Matter of fact, it's, it's exemplified in several ways. Look back in chapter one and verse 12. We see it very clearly. They attached themselves to men, they had not attached themselves to Christ. This is what happens. When a person pleases his flesh, He'll, he'll wrap himself around a preacher or, or some man or some doctrine or some church or some denomination. And this is the problem. They're attached to the wrong thing. Now, we're attached to Christ when we get saved. But by attaching ourselves to him, I mean surrendering to him. By allowing him to dictate to your life through his word and his will. So when a person does it the other way, it's exemplified here. In verse 12 of chapter one, it says, now I mean this, Paul says, after he talked about divisions amongst the church, he says, I've heard this, that each one of you is saying, now this is the whole church, this is not a faction of it. Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. And another is saying, I am of Apollos. And another is saying, and that's the second pastor, by the way, of the church, Paul was the first pastor. And then another says, I'm of Cephas, that's Simon Peter, the unsung leader of the church at that time. And then the, the worst group was the ones who were saying, I am of Christ. They had the right person, they had the wrong motive. I these kind of people bug me, buddy. When they come up, I am of Christ. Well, we'll be flipped. I mean, that's what they had in Corinth. Look over in chapter three in verse four, and he brings it up again. This time, however, he's dropped off two of them, and he comes, he zeroes in on the two pastors that Corinth has had. And he says in verse four, for when one says, after saying to them, you're babies, you're immature, and it's by your own choice, he says, for when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? In other words, when you start attaching yourself to preachers, look out. You've embraced the flesh that is an act of idolatry. You have taken that preacher, put him in a place that the Holy Spirit tells us that Christ needs and, and deserves. And so that's an act of idolatry. In chapter three, or chapter four rather, we find that they had become arrogant. Look at verse six. This is evidence in their arrogance. He says, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, because that's what they were doing, in order that no one of you might become arrogant. Fusio, it means a spiritual airbag, somebody who has a lot of head knowledge but has no life to back it up in behalf of one against the other. Now they do become arrogant as you'll see in a, in a moment. In chapter five, they would not deal with sin in their church. To show you how idolatrous they were, they would not deal with known immorality within their own church. He says in verse five, verse one, or chapter five, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife most likely his stepmother, because when it's translated that way, but that's still incest according to the Levitical law, and it's still adultery, and they would not deal with it. He tells them a little later on, he says, my goodness, folks, when I told you not to fellowship with immoral people, I didn't mean in the world, I meant in the church. Deal with it. You see, flesh 
will not raise a standard. Flesh will not deal with sin. And so we see them being an idolatrous church. We look over in chapter six and everybody in the church was suing everybody at the drop of a hat. Does that sound like the 20th century or what? Verse one, does any one of you when he has a case against his neighbor dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? He goes on to say, can't you, one of you, be the smallest of law courts? You know what he's saying? He's saying you're gonna rule over angels one day. You're gonna, you're gonna rule over, the, uh, over peoples one day. Are you not capable of dying to this situation and stop allowing this to continue to fester among you? And that was in chapter six. In verse 13 through 18 of chapter six, he deals with the immorality that had gotten into the church from within the city of Corinth. Remember there was the huge temple up on top of the Acropolis there and it was the temple dedicated to Venus or Aphrodite and that was the goddess of love, quote. And they had 1,000 priestesses or really prostitutes that would come down into the city and on the bottom of their sandals they'd have follow me and people followed them and that was the immorality that they had to deal with. In chapter seven, they don't understand sexual behavior. They even start making it look like that sexual intimacy and marriage is the same thing as immorality. And Paul says, what is going on? You see, when a person embraces his flesh, he becomes confused even in the simplest areas of life. And the questions were rampant about singleness and divorce and, and marriage, and they wouldn't even have been there if they could have lived as Paul lived, not just single, but a man who lived to glorify Christ in their life. And then in chapter eight through our text this morning, they were insensitive to the weaker brethren around them. All of these things are evidences of a person living an idolatrous lifestyle not living attached to Christ. Now listen, idolatry is the epitome of bondage. But when you live surrendered to Christ, that's, that's the wonderful picture of freedom. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall do what? Set you free. Free from what? Free from yourself. And this is key. Freedom is not the right to do as you please. Freedom is the power to do as you should. But the people in Corinth had put themselves into bondage because they would not, they would not surrender to Christ. They would not attach themselves to him. They lived in an idolatrous world. And so Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 10, flee from idolatry. And the word flee means abandon it. Don't in any way, don't in any way allow idolatry to get into your life. In verse 15 he says, I speak to wise men, you judge what I say. The word for wise is not the normal word, it's phronemos, and phronemos means I speak to you as if you have some brains that can comprehend. Now you people that say you understand grace, he says, now listen, I'm speaking to you. Judge what I say. The word judge means you take what I'm about to say, filter it into your computer brain, make some choices based on the truth that I'm about to give you. Let it affect your behavior. You're only sensible when you allow what you know to affect what you do. So he says, I speak to you as to wise men. That's where the sermon title came from, a word to the wise. Now the first thing he's gonna tell them in review, because this is part two of a message, the first thing he's gonna tell them is, idolatry denounces God in your life. And what he's gonna do, he's gonna use two examples that you can't miss. He's gonna take Christians at first and their participation in the Lord's Supper, verse 16 and 17. It's not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now what he's saying is when we have the Lord's Supper, 
There's a beautiful spiritual intimacy that we're drawn together. Why? Because we're all celebrating the same thing. We would not be believers if we were not celebrating uh, and, 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 because we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. You see, believers celebrate the Lord's Supper, the cup that represents his blood and then the bread that represents his body, the body that was broken and died, the, the blood that was shed. The justice of God is in the blood. The love of God is seen in the body that was given and died for us. Now, we celebrate that. We're already one body, but we're made even, we're bonded even more together when we have the Lord's Supper. That's what it's for. To bond, it identifies us, and in a very real way, there is a spiritual participation together. And so when people walk in here and they see you and I, and we're taken to the Lord's Supper with thanksgiving in our heart, when tears fill our eyes as we remember what Christ has done for us, when they begin to realize this, we now are identified. As we saw in the video, our, 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 our message is clear. Our pathway is straight. People know where we point. These people love Jesus and celebrate what he did for them. The second illustration he does, he moves away from the church and he moves to Israel to show you the same principle. He says in verse 18, look at the nation Israel. Are, those, are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? In other words, when they'd bring a sacrifice, everybody participated in the sacrifice. You got a portion of it to eat for yourself. And as they would eat of that sacrifice that had been given, the first portion was the actual sacrifice, the other portion was for the priest, and when you would partake of that other portion, it simply meant that you were identifying, just like a Christian would identify in the Lord's Supper, these people would be identifying with all of Israel and saying, we hold true with their, with their ritual, with their tradition, and in the fact that they rejected Jesus being their Messiah. All of that would be in the one package, but there would be a clear message and everybody around would say, yes, sir, those people went to the altar, those people sacrificed, those people identified themselves as Israel. A Jew that has been saved would not go to the altar, would not give a sacrifice. He'd be over here with the Christians celebrating the cup and celebrating the body of Christ. But at least they're identified. You know who the Jew is, you know who the Christian is, but then he brings his point. In verse 19, he says, now what do I mean? That's a, that's a, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Am I saying that? Am I putting the idol worship into some kind of category that would equal what I've just, just illustrated? Or that an idol is anything? And he quickly answers it, says no. But he said there's a more serious principle here that we need to see. He says, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Now, the same way, he says, I don't want you to be identified with them. I don't want you to participate with them. You're sending a mixed signal. That's more important than the fact that there's no such thing as an idol. That's more important than the fact that that meat sacrificed to an idol will in no way hinder you in your standing with God through Christ Jesus. That's not his point. His point is in saying you're sending a mixed signal. A man who points in every direction points in no direction. But if we point in one direction, then everybody knows which way we point. And he says, therefore, live your life that way. An idolatrous lifestyle is when flesh says, I want to do it this way. But by doing it this way, pulls the witness away from what our focus really ought to be. He says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. You cannot do it. Cannot means, ooh, you cannot in any way, shape, or form. You can't drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. 
You partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't do that. The two won't mix. You take oil and try to mix it with water and they won't mix. You take idolatry and try to mix it with Christianity and it won't mix. And what's happening in the 20th century are people who haven't learned that yet. They still try to mix the world into their lifestyle at the same time practice living as a Christian and the two cannot coexist. And what happens is you end up embracing flesh rather than end up embracing Christ and sending a clear witness to others. Well, he says in verse 22, a second thing, not only does, does idolatry denounce God in your life and sends a mixed signal, but then secondly, it provokes God to anger. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't do dumb things. I do stupid things. <laughs> it's stupid when you know better, but you do it anyway. And you see, what happens is we provoke the anger of the Lord. One of the greatest ways I know I'm a believer is in the chastening and the disciplining and the scourging of the Lord. I can't get away with sin. I cannot get away with sin. How do you feel when you, when you sin? Oh, Brother Wayne, we don't sin. Oh, excuse me, I've got the wrong group. How do you feel? What's conviction like in your life? What's it like? Conviction? Well, I hadn't felt that in a long time. Are you sure you're saved? Because the Father said he chastens and disciplines and scourges those who are ill. You know what the word scourge means? It means beats the hide clean off. He'll take you to the point of death to get your attention if you're his child. He's not trying to get you, he already has you. He's trying to shape you and conform you in the image of Christ Jesus. And so when people embrace the flesh, they provoke the anger of God. And he says this very clearly here. He says in verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Is that what you wanna do? We're, we're not stronger than he is, are we? The word stronger is skis. We don't have that kind of inherent strength to make us think that we can do what we wanna do, thinking that he can't do anything about it. We're not that stupid, are we? And then he says in verse 23, all things are lawful. Now he doesn't mean you can go out and shoot somebody. He doesn't mean you can drive 110 miles an hour on a 65 mile an hour speed limit. What he says is, in regard to your eternal salvation, when you've received Christ, all things are lawful in the fact that they cannot in any way destroy your relationship to God. But, he says, not all things are profitable. In other words, you can make your own choice, but you can't choose the consequence. Man, how many times I choose my flesh. Am I the only one in here that does that? Anybody else can relate to me this morning? Hey, thank you. I feel better. I do, all the time. <laughs> Well, Brother Wayne, why are we listening to you? I don't know. Why am I preaching to you? We're <laughs> all in the same mess. Just making those stupid choices and killing our witness and sending a mixed signal all because the flesh wanted it and we embraced the flesh rather than embracing Christ. He says, all things are lawful. He repeats it again. He says, but all things don't edify. In other words, we need to be sensitive that we're building up our brother and not tearing him down. We can't take our liberty under grace and flaunt it over our brother because what it does, it suppresses him and defiles his conscience and then we have sinned against Christ as we saw in an earlier chapter. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good. In other words, you don't live for your own benefit. Man, I tell you, that's tough when it's worked out in it. <laughs> I'm telling you, yeah, yeah, I'm serious. You go through some of the business dealings in life you gotta go through and all of a sudden you gotta learn that you don't live for your own benefit. You live for the benefit of others. I want to tell you, everything inside of you will scream at you and say, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. I have rights. This is mine. And what are you doing? 
And God says, no, you don't, buddy. You don't live for yourself. You live for the benefit of others. You have no option except to embrace him if you want to walk free. Now, if you want bondage, it's instant. Just embrace the flesh. And immediately now, you put yourself back into the bondage from which Christ has delivered you. Well, we come to the third point. You thought I would never get there, and that's today. Number one, idolatry denounces God in your life. Number two, it provokes him to anger. And who in the world do we think we are? And then thirdly is this. There would be no idolatry in the believer's life, kind of long, if we would all live to glorify God in all things. Now, it's going to take a while for him to develop this. But if this was your purpose and my purpose, when we wake up in the morning, God, I don't know what I'm going to face today, but all I want is for you to be recognized in me. Father, help me to decrease so that you might increase in me today. May people look at me today and see Christ. If we would live that way, we would make all kinds of concessions when it comes to our own rights, and we'd make all kinds of choices to die to ourselves. This is the tough part. Man, this is where the line is drawn. This is where the video came in. This is when the fellow said, hey, son, I know what choice you'll make. I know who lives in your heart. And then they came to take him out. He had made his mind up. He's not gonna embrace the flesh. He wants everything in his life to point one direction, and that's to Jesus. And to do that, he's got to decrease so that Christ might increase. I tell you what, you know one of the worst doctrines going around today is that God is not fair. Have you heard that? Well, I'll tell you something, folks. If God is fair, then we're all going to bust hell wide open. I thank my God he's not fair. I thank my God he's just and righteous and is willing to come to this earth and pay a price for my filthy sin I thank my God for that. And anything less than hell is grace. Now understand this. That's the way we live. Not our rights. It's not what benefits me. It's what benefits him. No matter what it costs me. No matter what it costs me. That the testimony of Jesus Christ might be seen in and through us as his church. So that we don't send a mixed signal that we say one thing on Sundays and live another way Monday through Saturday. That's the whole point. Well, let's see how he develops it. Verse 25, he puts some balance. Can't you imagine after he's just finished talking to people that understood grace, <laughs> and he's just told them that eating meat sacrificed to idols is worshiping demons. Can't you see him sitting there saying, do what? I mean, he's the one who taught me, what's going on here? And Paul evidently anticipated that. And so he puts some balance in here so that you can think through what he's saying. He says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Now, you know what the conscience is. It's, it's a little Greek word that means the inner witness within you. It's whatever it is, and you can't put a finger on it, that tells you that something is right or tells you that something is wrong. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been going through the line at the grocery store <laughs> and you gave them some money and they gave you twice as much change as you needed? Did that ever happen to anybody? And something goes through your mind and says, don't take it, don't take it. And the flesh says, well, that's their stupid mistake, it's mine. I mean, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. But something inside of you keeps saying, no, 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 that's wrong, that's wrong. What is that? That's your conscience. We say, well, how can some people have a different conscience than others? Well, it's because truth enlightens the conscience. So it depends on how much truth you've been exposed to as to how your conscience is gonna work. 
If you've not been exposed to, to truth, you can grow up thinking all kinds of things are right. You can go to some cultures and they have immoral practices that we would say are immoral, but in their culture, they don't understand that. Truth has never enlightened the conscience. Now Paul says, now listen to me. You've been taught, your conscience has been enlightened. Don't walk around so paranoid, you're scared to death, you're gonna do something idolatrous. When you go to the store to buy meat, buy the meat, go home, cook it and eat it and quit asking all the questions. Because you're okay in Christ, it's not gonna hurt you. Now do you understand their culture? All of the meat practically, 80% of it was meat sacrificed to idols. <laughs> what are you gonna be, a vegetarian? I mean if you want meat and you go to the market, don't ask the question, just go in and buy it and walk out. He said, don't ask the question for conscience sake. Boy, it's amazing if you'll take this thing and apply it. <laughs> remember years ago, how many of you remember when a major car company in America was cited in the paper for giving a large contribution to the Communist Party? Does anybody remember this at all? Is it just me? Well, anyway, everybody said, I can't drive that car anymore because that gave money to communists. And I'm not... I'm not going to buy that car. Well, I hate to tell you, just about every one of them have, did, have done the same thing in one way or another, maybe not as directly. You keep taking that principle, well, I can't go to the store. That store sells beer. Well, what are you going to do? Mail order your food? <laughs> Come on, man, let's just get real. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We got to eat, go to the store, get the meat, take it home, cook and eat it. That's what Paul said. Quit walking around thinking, good grief, is this the law, is this not the good? He says, You're, don't ask his questions for conscience sake. Then he says, verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's <laughs> and all that it contains. Now does that have any meaning to anybody? Yeah, if you've stayed in Corinthians, it should go back to chapter three. I mean, it has a lot of meaning. If the earth is his, all of it belongs to him, Remember what we studied in chapter three? Look in verse 21 of chapter three. I mean, this is so powerful. Look here. By the way, if everything belongs to him, that includes the cows and wherever the meat comes from, the chickens. But by the way, I think liver is an unclean meat. <laughs> that, that is in the class with raw oysters and asparagus. Oh, Barth. Have you ever eaten boiled asparagus? Is that nasty or what? Well, anyway, that's uh, verse 22, verse 21 of chapter 3. <laughs> the mind's a terrible thing. Huh? Verse 21, so then let no one boast in men, he says, for all things belong to you. Now, wait a minute, I thought all things belonged to him. Well, hang on. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. In other words, he is God. Everything belongs to him, and since you belong to him, all things belong to you. Now go to the store, get to me, cook and eat it, quit griping. That's what he tells them. Quit walking around so paranoid you can't even eat. Just go to the store and buy it. But no, wait a minute. He brings up another scenario here. One is buying meat at the market. The other one is, when, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers, now circle that, not a believer, an unbeliever, what? Remember the Corinthians weren't fellowshipping with the unbelievers. <laughs> they had it backwards. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. First of all, he says if one of them invites you. By the way, if you ever wanna know the word of your calling, that's the word kaleo, that's the word here. It's an invitation. When it comes to your calling being salvation, he sent us an invitation, didn't he, through John three sixteen and gave us the grace and the measure of faith to receive it. And so that's, that's part of that word. 
But he says here, if they send you an invitation. Now, what, what do you get an invitation from? Probably, in their culture, a feast, a wedding, big thing. But it's an unbeliever having it. And he sends you an invitation. And he says, if you wish to go, the word wish, fellow, if you desire to go, you don't have to go. It's not sinful if you don't go, and it's not sinful if you do go. But if you choose to go, he says, I've got something to tell you. Watch, I love this. He says, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Now, in other words, if you're going to an unbeliever's feast, what's the assumption? The assumption is 99.9% .9 of the meat is gonna be meat sacrificed to idols. That's their lifestyle, that's what they eat. He says, but you're going as a believer and you wanna make an impact on this man's life. You don't walk in the door and address the fact that that meat is sacrificed to idols. No, sir, you take your fork and your knife, cut it up, eat it, put a little ketchup on it, enjoy it. Because you're there for an eternal purpose. You're not just there to eat with him. You're there to affect him for all of eternity. You know why that is? That's the heart of Jesus beating inside of you. You know who were the most unliked people in Jesus' day? The Pharisees. Now, if you don't understand the Pharisees, unless you've been to Israel and been around a Hasidic Jew, have you ever been around one? It's by the grace of God I have not put one in the floor. Most arrogant, push you out of the way, quiet, because we're dogs, we're dirt, we're Gentiles. And they are the God's chosen people. Well, I know, in Christ I can love them. I don't like them. And I want to tell you, that's exactly the attitude Jesus dealt with every time. He told, he turned on them one time, said, you whitewashed tombs, you vipers. Jesus did that. I mean, it so irritated him, this false religiosity, which we see even in today's time. Well, that was the, Jesus, you know, he didn't really like them, but he loved them and came to die for them. And three times in the book of Luke, he went to eat at the Pharisee's house. And every time it says he went in and reclined with them. You know how they would eat? They'd lay down. What if I, with my Pepsi ulcer that I had, and I'd be dead by now if we did that, laying down and eating. Now I'm just about to do it. And they would sit in the recliner and do the same thing. Well, they're laying down and eating. And he'd go and eat with the Pharisees. The first time it's recorded is in Luke chapter seven. And they want him to come over. So he comes over and a sinful woman comes from out of town, in the, in the town rather, and comes in and, and sees that he's Christ and she takes some alabaster oil and she gets down and anoints his feet. And the Lord Jesus received the worship of this sinful woman. Why do you think he was at the Pharisee's house? Just to eat, you kidding me? He was there because they needed to understand that God loves even the most sinful. The Pharisees had such strict separation idea that they wouldn't even associate with anybody that wasn't like them. And Jesus beautifully received the worship of this sinful woman. The next time it's used over Luke chapter 11. And in Luke chapter 11, look, look over there. Luke chapter 11 and verses uh, 37 through 39. This is the time when the Lord surprised them that he didn't go through the ceremonial cleansing before he had his meal. He says in verse 37 of Luke 11, now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him and he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. That was part of their ritual. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. You think he was there just to eat? No, sir. He wanted those Pharisees to understand and the only way to teach them was to be in the home with them. He went with a divine purpose. He went to get their hearts. 
And his purpose was to show them that cleansing on the outside is religion, but no man can cleanse the inside. Only Christ can cleanse the inside. And to be saved, you must be cleansed from the inside out. Religion won't cut it. That's the way he taught them. But not only that, in Luke 14, one through four, he has another experience. And on this one, it was on a Sabbath. Men there watching him like a hawk. What's he gonna do on the Sabbath? You can't blink your eye, practically. Matter of fact, you couldn't, you couldn't carry a, a burden on the Sabbath. You know, they said if you had a handkerchief upstairs, they didn't have handkerchiefs, but just to give an illustration. If you had a handkerchief upstairs and wanted to get it downstairs, you couldn't carry it, because that's carrying a burden. So you could wrap it around your neck and wear it down. That's different. I mean, that's weird. You, you couldn't move on the Sabbath because the Pharisees made man for the Sabbath where Jesus had to go and show them as he healed the man with dropsy. He healed him of a very serious disease at that time on the Sabbath, on that day, in the Pharisees' home to show them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But what I share these things with you is because Jesus went to the people that rejected him. He went to the people who invited him. Why? He didn't just go to eat. He went with an eternal purpose in mind. Now, this is what Paul is showing them. When you go pointing in one direction, you have a purpose bigger than the purpose for their invitation. Well, he says in verse 28, but if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. Push the plate back, drop the fork, and don't touch another bite. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Could this be confusion or what? Let me show you what I believe he's talking about, and I'll, I'll try to prove it in a minute. What he's talking about is there's more people than him at that, at that feast, other believers. Do you think the pagan's gonna stand up in front of the whole feast and say, hey, folks, I, I hope you're enjoying the meat sacrificed to idols. Good grief, the pagan eats that all the time. It could give a rip. But I'll tell you who it is that came to him. There's a weaker brother in that group. And here he is enjoying himself and he didn't ask any questions because Paul told him not to. And he's sitting over there eating that meat that's been sacrificed to idols and he knows it won't affect his eternal standing in Christ, but there's a weaker brother there. What's been his context since chapter eight? Why would he change it now? The weaker brother comes over, the pious weaker brother. They think they're the stronger. Have you ever noticed that? How the weaker always think they're the stronger? And he walks over and says to you, you're eating meat sacrificed to idols. And when that weaker brother tells you that, immediately he says, stop eating, drop the fork, and don't touch another bite. Well, why in the world would he say that? He tells you. He says, for the sake of the one who informed you. What's been his context in chapter eight? The weaker brother, who doesn't understand, defiles his conscience every time he gets around it. He says, for his sake, he says, and for conscience sake. Now, whose conscience? He just told him not to ask any questions for conscience sake. Whose conscience is he talking about now? He clarifies that, verse 29. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. In other words, what you're doing is not for your conscience sake. You have not been doing anything wrong, but to continue doing it would cause your brother to stumble and his conscience would be defiled. Therefore, you stop. Be sensitive to your weaker brother. Then he goes on, he says, and he puts himself in this position. He says, why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? In other words, it's not gonna be judgment on me, it'll be judgment on him. Therefore, be sensitive. Now I know one of the questions that's gotta be going through your mind, it went through mine, how do you know 
when to eat and when not. I mean, it's kind of, it gets a little confusing. You carry a little list around? No. God didn't give you the map. He gave you the guide. You got to stay as close to the guide as you possibly can. Be sensitive to when he speaks. You don't have to even know that there's somebody there that's being offended. The Holy Spirit of God will let you know. Well, how does he let me know? Because, uh, let me give you this illustration. If my mom would call me right now, would that be a miracle? I mean, she's been in heaven 17 years. Would that be? AT&T can't do that. I mean, MCI and all of them can't do that. If she called and I pick up the phone, hello, mom. And she'd say, Wayne, how'd you recognize my voice? I've been dead 17 years. And I'd say, mom, I spent so much time with you down here on this earth. I would recognize your voice anywhere. You see, when you're attached to Christ, you're spending time in his word. You're living a surrender to him. And when he's speaking to you in those intimate times in the word, don't worry. You'll know when he's speaking to you when you don't have the book in front of your face. He sensitizes you to his voice. You may not ever understand it down here. You may actually, let me ask you a question. Do you remember, how many of you like IBC root beer? I know Eddie does. How many of you like IBC root beer? But let me ask you a question. What does that look like? <laughs> now, now that I've said it on television, it's going to come back to haunt me, I guarantee you. But I love it. I live for it. Oh, ice cold. Don't put ice in it. That kills it. Just get it good and cold and drink that thing. I love that root beer. I just do. I just like it. I don't, I even more than like it. I hate cats, but I love that. <laughs> live for it. But I had a person suggest to me one day, said, do you realize what you're doing? You're sending a mixed signal to other, and I'm thinking, don't tell me that. And all of a sudden, I've had to be very careful and try to be sensitive. Now, it doesn't mean I quit because there are times when I don't sense that, but there have been times that I've gone into a store just to pick one up. It's cold, it's good. And the Holy Spirit says, don't do it. And I'm not real sure why, except for this text. I bet you there was somebody that was watching me that would, might have got a mixed signal as to what was going on. And I'll tell you what, perfection is not at all the, the subject of the matter. Predictability is. To live a life is predictable enough to where people will know what you do. Even when you fail, they know what you'll do. Doesn't mean you're gonna make it right all the time. But that's what it means to be attached to Christ. To be free to be what he wants you to be. Instead, of doing what you'd rather do. Well, he says in verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Now, here, here's, you gotta understand what's going on here. Here's a guy who's gone to a feast with a godly motive. The word thankfulness is not thankfulness. Why is it translated that way? I don't know. It's the word charis, it's grace. I do what I do. Listen, grace motivates a believer. Grace enables a believer. Grace instructs a believer. And grace is the enabling power of God, being sensitive to him. How many Christians have not yet separated religion from relationship? That's what we're talking about, relationship. And grace is what enables all of that. And what he's saying is, hey, you're gonna be slandered for some of the things you do. But the difference is this. You're gonna ask that same question. But the difference is this, when you let Christ be glorified in your life, then it's not you making the offense, it's Christ in you causing the offense. There's a difference in me causing them to be offended and Christ causing them to be offended. And when I'm embracing him and they still get offended, I don't, I'm free and clear. It's not me, it's Christ that's making them offended. And then look what he says in verse 31, here's your principle. 
He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. Here we go, blanket line. Whatever you do, whatever is a real Greek word that means whatever. <laughs> I mean, this is not a one time a week. This is everything you do. He says, do all for the glory of God. And let me explain that to you. I, I hate to do this. It's gonna look awful. My shirt is so sweaty and wet, but I gotta do it. To, I'm just a bad, I hold my stomach again, so it looks like I'm a trimmer. <laughs> if I hold this coat up, there's no way life can be glorified in it because there's no life in it. You know what glory means? Recognized, that's the root of the word. And then the word esteem comes out of that. But the root of the word, doxa, means to be recognized, to give recognition to. How are you going to give recognition to something that's not there? But if life gets in the coat, and the coat yields to the life, then it has given recognition to the life that is within it. So when it moves, recognition doesn't go to the coat. Recognition goes to the life that is in the coat. Whatever you do, give recognition. By the way you're willing to attach yourself to him and deny yourself by saying yes to him, give recognition, not to you, no sir, but to the one who lives in you. Whether you're out eating or whether you're drinking or whatever you're doing, make sure your purpose is eternal to let Christ be seen in you. Verse 32, Give no offense, don't cause them to stumble, either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. There's your three classes of people. Jews, don't get, the word there, don't cause them to stumble is the idea when it says don't give an offense. And the idea is if Christ is being glorified in you, he will cause them to, cause, to stumble because he is a stumbling block, the gospel, the preaching of the cross. To the Gentile, it's foolishness. And to the church, you got the weaker brother. So you got all of them covered right there. Don't live your life to become a stumbling block. Build your brother, don't break him. And then in verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit. I don't do it to, to it's just, these are not brownie points. I'm doing them for one reason, that they may be saved. Look over in Romans chapter 15. I've been accused of finding the Christ life in every passage of scripture in the Bible. That, that's, that's a compliment, thank you. Somebody said, well, there's more teaching in the Bible than the Christ life. Yes, there is, but every bit of it is rooted right there. If you don't understand this one central message, the good news somehow is warped in your understanding. Christ did not just come into your life to renew you, he came into your life to replace you. Yeah, with, with our combined effort of surrender to him, it is then 100% his power, his presence, and his passion that works through us. That's the Christ life. So anything he commands me to do, he lives in me to enable me to do it. And the results are not results that the flesh could do. The results are eternal results. Look in verse 17. Paul says, therefore in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting. <laughs> Here's the old Pharisee himself. Obeyed all 612 laws. For he said in Philippians chapter three, according to the law, I was found blameless. But he says, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Watch this. For I would not presume to speak of anything except, oh, listen, listen. He says, I have discovered something. I wouldn't open my mouth in a crowded room except to say this. Not of what I could do for God. No, sir. My flesh has deceived me too many times. His problem was not his rebellious flesh. His problem was his religious flesh. 
He said, except for what Christ has accomplished through me, via, by the means of me, through me as the vessel, look at the result. Resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. You go back to our, our, our verse 33 of chapter 10. He says, but the last part of it, I do what I do to please all men for the profit of many that they may be saved. Paul can't save anybody. Paul said, I have learned to embrace Christ, to glorify him in all things, for people to see less of me and to see more of him. And the eternal result is that some will stumble, some will slander you, but some will get saved. And they're the ones who will greet you one day when you get to heaven. Now let me ask you a question. And we're just about through with this whole subject because he's gonna enter into another area here in a moment. Let me ask you a question. What is it that you continually defend that you know under grace does not in any way affect your eternal standing with God in Jesus Christ? What is it? <laughs> well, Brother Wayne, don't look at me while you ask that. Okay, I'll look over here. Oh, no, the choir's over here. <laughs> Oops, looked right at Ron Williams, that's bad. What is it? I'm gonna look at the floor. I'm not looking at anybody. Golly, day, man, it doesn't hurt me to take a drink whenever I want to. It's not gonna hurt my stomach. Good grief, I like a little wine, because Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach. Hmm, how does that hold up with 1 Corinthians 8 through 10? Let me tell you how it holds up. It doesn't float. That sunk before you got out of chapter eight. Well, Brother Wayne, I, man, I've been, I've been, gosh, I gotta have that stuff. I'm just picking the obvious, you know what I'm doing. Have you ever heard me preach on either one? No, you haven't. I preach Christ. But let me tell you something. Whatever you're holding on to and defending it as your right under grace is the very thing that's hindering you from being what God wants you to be. And I want to tell you something else. Whatever restriction you put on God, God's going to turn right around and put that right back on you. Until you deal with that, God's not going to use you like you want to be used. You're not going to be free. You put yourself right back into bondage. That's me. I'm looking in the mirror. That's me, that's you. No big eyes, no little use. Now, the Corinthians didn't get the picture. They said, never finish a message with something humorous, but I think we've been so heavy today, I need to lighten it up, because I'm not gonna be your convictor, I want Christ to be your convictor. Ken Kressenberg told me this. <laughs> this is Corinth. This is us, as hard-headed as we are in the 20th century. There was a magician on a ship. Some of you are gonna take three weeks to get this. <laughs> Especially the blonde. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But there was a magician on a ship. He only had one act, I mean, several acts, but he, only, he always did the same thing because the people were always changing out. So he had a different group every week. The problem was the captain had a parrot. And that parrot started watching what that magician was doing, thinking he understood it all. And that parrot figured out his tricks. And that parrot began to spoil his magician act. And right in the middle of a trick, he'd say, ah, you got a whole handful of aces, not just one. Or the rabbit's in the hat. Or look under the table. And he was just ruining his act and he hated that parrot. That parrot thought he was so smart. Well, one day in a storm, he couldn't kill it because it was the captain's. There was a storm at sea. Ship turned over and sunk. And the only two people that were left, or the only two living creatures that were left was the magician and the parrot. They hated each other. Hanging to a log, staring at each other, icy cold stares for four days. Neither one of them said anything. And 
Finally, the parent <laughs> broke the silence. He said, all right, all right, I give up. What'd you do with the ship? <laughs> Just couldn't get the picture. That's Corinth. I wonder how many hard heads are in here today that just don't get the picture. If you're a Christian, you celebrate what Christ did for you, there's only one way you can live. Any other way is idolatry and sends a mixed signal and you've killed your witness and you're causing your brother to stumble. Period. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 